If you have been with us over the last few while, you will know that we have been in a series um, called Until He Comes as we look at what it is to be uh, followers of Jesus in the now and not yet of the kingdom of God. We've just come out of a four-part series on Lent. Um, so if you want to catch all of those, you can get them and any of our other uh, sermons on our Spotify and Apple Music platforms, as well as here on our YouTube channel. But today we are at the beginning of Holy Week, and today is Palm Sunday, the first day of Holy Week. And to help us, we're going to be looking at Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11, and the story of Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem uh, at the beginning of that week, uh, the week that forever changed the course of history. So if you want to turn there now, I'll give you a few seconds to find it. Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on, the cool, on, a, fool, on a colt, the fool of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowd that went ahead of them and followed behind shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowd answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. We thank God for his word and that it still speaks today. As I mentioned, it is Palm Sunday, and today we look at a passage um, that commonly marks Palm Sunday that is otherwise known as Jesus' triumphal entry. And growing up, I heard this story quite a lot. Uh, growing up in church, year after year, comes to Easter, this was like the starting point. This is the Sunday that marked as we went into the Easter season. But to be completely honest, I found it all really kind of strange. It's really quite random and even quite boring after a year of hearing it. And uh, on the surface, there was seemingly nothing really going on, at least nothing significant anyway, other than Jesus on the back of a donkey that probably struggled to carry him with a crowd of maybe 20, 30 people that are kind of leaving big leaves on the ground very neatly as he kind of walked by. But the more... Uh, that I read into this passage, and as I studied the wider context, I began to realize just how significant this passage really is. And there are two things that I want to dig into today to kind of help us see what's really going on. They are expectation and sacrifice. And expectations are, are funny things. Regardless of who we are, we all have them. Expectations about uh, our work, expectations about um, the first house you want to buy, expectations about the kind of person that we want to be, the kind of uh, way we want to raise our children. But quite often, our expectations go unmet, especially when it comes to dating. 
um, and more specifically with blind dates. We are living in a world with an ever-increasing amount of dating apps um, or online dating. We have elite singles. There is match Tinder eHarmony. eHarmony claims that someone finds love every 14 minutes. I mean, I think that's just a lie, to be completely honest. But online dating has its expectations, and it's usually because someone is likely to advertise the best possible version of themselves. And here are just some of the uh, stories of some people whose expectations were unmet on blind dates. The first time I went on a date with a girl I met on the internet was a fantastic failure. I ma as I imagined, in most cases, when I saw her in person, she wasn't as attractive as her photos let on. No biggie, she was still nice, and I hoped I'm not that shallow. However, the first thing I disliked is that she wanted to sit in the front row of the cinema. Still, I decided people had dealt with much worse. But then it got worse. Her friend shows up, and these two are pointing and laughing and mocking characters in the film, and I have become the third wheel on their date. At this point, I decided my time had come, excused myself to the bathroom, and went home to play some Counter-Strike. Or Sam's story, I met a girl on the internet and she seemed really nice and really down to earth. We had lots in common, including our hobbies and our politics, stuff like that. So I was thinking we might hit this off. We agreed to meet up in a coffee shop, but bear in mind, I'm not super attractive. So to this point, she's never seen any photos of me. Instead, we have pre-arranged recognition signals uh, she walks into the door. I spot her right away through um, her clothing and uh, she starts waving. And she gets a sort of un uncertain look on her face. And she walks over and she says, Sam? And I said, yes. And she said, no. And walked out. Brutal. Or what about Ryan's experience? I went on a blind date with a friend of a friend. And the first thing out of her mouth was, well, Sarah wasn't kidding when she said you weren't that tall. Spoiler alert, I'm fairly short. And five minutes in, she told me that she didn't really see it going anywhere, but proceeded to order herself a Grey Goose Martini and a $30 appetizer for herself. So I got up, said I was going to the bathroom, paid for my one beer, and left. Expectations play such an interesting role in our reality, whether we ever see them being met or not. We're bombarded by so many things that often overpromise and under-deliver. Whether it's products that we need or it's our expectations with relationships like some of the stories that I've mentioned, whether it's expectations around our job or money or our appearance or the stage of life that we should be at. Our expectations of Jesus can be a lot like that too, can't they? That he should look a certain way that he should act a certain way, that he should fit a certain mold, that he should do certain things and he shouldn't do certain things. And a question I want to put to you today is what is your expectation of Jesus? <clears throat> and I want you to hold that question in your mind as we dig into the context of what's really happening in the passage we just read. <clears throat> so it's 30 AD in Israel. It's Passover week and one of the most, it's one of the most sacred weeks in the Jewish calendar as Jews remember and celebrate their freedom from past oppression. Jerusalem will be packed with people from all over the country. Josephus writes about how the population would have swelled at this time 
um, of the year. <clears throat> Our modern translations often refer to this as Jesus' triumphal entry. As he proceeds into Jerusalem from the east of Israel at the beginning of Holy Week. But this is not the only procession, not the only entry that is being celebrated. As well as Jesus, Pilate, the Roman governor, was also entering Jerusalem that day from the west of the city. But he was entering in a really different fashion. Note that it was standard procedure for the Roman governor of Judea to be in Jerusalem for any major Jewish festivals, of which Passover was definitely one. However, Pilate wasn't there to join with the Jewish people in the religious in the religious devotion or the reverence or to celebrate their Jewish liberty. No, he was there to to demonstrate his imperial authority. Historical accounts tell of Pilate leading a procession of soldiers who are dressed in finely polished leather, with swords made of the hardest steel and helmets that reflect the hot sun, with drummers who set the cadence for the march. So set so picture the scene. Jewish nationalism is at an all-time high during this particular festival as mass amounts of people arrive in Jerusalem to celebrate the heritage and their liberation of how God saved them from the Egyptian oppression hundreds of years earlier. Pilate is on a war horse with his men following suit and they aren't arriving in Jerusalem for any celebration but to intimidate the Jewish people. About 80 years previous to this, the Romans had taken over Jerusalem and Pilate was in town with a statement, you can have your Holy Week celebrations, but make no mistake, Rome is still in charge. Now contrast this attempt at marking territory, this display of authority, this threat of might and of force, contrast that with what's going on on the other side of the city. A procession of Jesus, a probable homeless man on the back of a donkey with a crowd not dressed in fine armour, but actually throwing down their coats and putting palm branches on the ground, their weapon of choice, this branch that represented peace. This is a show of humility, not of force. And Jesus is doing two things here. Firstly, he is speaking to the people in a language that they understand but he's demonstrating so countercultural that they actually missed the point altogether. What I mean by that? Well, to put this into context again, these people would have known their Old Testament. Look at verses four and five. The crowds see that Jesus is coming into the city and they recall the prophecy given by Zechariah in Zechariah 9, 8 to 10. This is what it says. But I will encamp... At my temp- I will encamp at my temple and guard it against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. For now I'm keeping watch. And this is uh, verse 4 and 5, which was quoted in today's reading. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on, the, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the prophecy goes on to say, I will take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So they knew a king was coming to save them. And they knew he was going to be on a donkey. So when they see Jesus arrive 
in this way. They're thinking, yes, here comes the king who will save us. However, the king they expect is not the king that they got. As I mentioned, the Jewish people were under Roman rule and they were expecting a savior who would deliver them from that. As well, Jesus arrives and the crowds are shouting in verse nine, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And this term Hosanna has two meanings. It means praise and it means save now. N.T. Wright said it like this. Hosanna is a word uh, which mixes exuberant praise to God with the prayer that God will save save his people and do so right away. So the Jewish people were expecting a king who would save them from Roman rule and do it immediately. And the reality is they got neither. Is it any wonder that within a week these same people were calling the Romans to crucify him? Sure, he's not the king that we were promised. Get rid of him. We don't want him here. Crucify him. They expected a saviour but not one that would rule over their hearts and their lives. They wanted one that would save them from the Roman regime and do it immediately. That's how they missed the point. Michael Green, a Bible commentator, puts it even better than I could when he says, He, Jesus, wants to make the people of Jerusalem see that though he is their rightful king, his reign is one of peace and of service. He is not the political messiah they were expecting, And he has come to rule over the hearts of men and women. His reign is not about borders. It's not about politics. It's about people and it's about the state of the heart. But the people wanted a political Jesus. They wanted a political revolution against Rome. Not a revolution of the heart. And Jesus' procession was not a rival demonstration to Pilate either, but a chance to show these people another way. To show them his way. So that leads me back to my earlier question. What is your expectation of Jesus? What version of him are you expecting this Easter? One that will agree with your politics. One that will like the people that you like. One that will advocate for the causes that you do. Henry Rizzo once said that God created man in his own image. And man being a gentleman returned the favour. And that's the problem, right? Over time, we mold God into this version of himself that we can love, a version that we can get on board with. But the reality is we've probably refined him down to an idealised version that we seek for our own lives, a version that we think is achievable and sustainable. Jesus was so unlike any other king that had gone before. He wasn't interested in enforcing a political agenda. And when I was studying this passage, as I looked at the historic accounts of of Pilate's procession, and they all tell of Pilate leading the the procession with an army of soldiers behind him. Yet I was so moved at the positioning of Jesus as he entered the city. uh, Verse 9 says this, the crowd that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. The crowds went ahead of him and followed behind. He was in the center. He was in the middle, not like Pilate, broadcasting his authority and his power on a war horse. 
but at the center on a donkey with the desire not to save the people from imperial force, but to save them from themselves. And with humility and grace, he did just that by going to the cross five days later. Jesus was, was not the king that they expected, and he was hardly the king that they wanted either because he was so much more interested in the state of their heart than the state of their politics. After all, his name is Jesus, which literally means saviour. In the Christmas narrative, we read these words from Matthew 1, uh, verse 20 and 21. But after he, Joseph, pondered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be, be afraid to embrace Mary as your wife, for the one conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus, because he will save the people from their sins. That's the kind of king Jesus is. So what is your expectation of him? Because he's the friend of sinners. He's Lord. He's king of kings. And he has a deep desire to have communion with you, to be in relationship with you, to walk with you, to go before you and to go beside you. I believe this passage has to teach us about expectation. But the second thing I think this passage has to speak about is sacrifice. We are living in one of the most surreal moments that we've ever lived in, a moment of sacrifice and surrender for us all, for the sake of our communities, for the sake of our country, for the sake of our NHS, for our own welfare. We have to surrender our normality. We have to surrender our comfort. We're being told uh, to stay at home and to distance ourselves from loved ones. We can't go out unless we, can, unless we go out once a day only for exercise. We can't buy toilet roll at supermarkets, cafes, bars, restaurants. They're all closed. Jobs are being cut. This is one of the strangest times to be human. And it feels like the playing field of humanity has been well and truly leveled in this moment. There's a sense of security that's, or in, insecurity that is at an all-time high and fear with an all-time high. And we're in a moment of sacrifice. But what a moment for the people of God to realign our hearts to the one that came to save us, to realign ourselves to his way, to be a voice of certainty in one of the most uncertain times, to surrender our fear for the one whose perfect love cast out all fear. You know, one thing um, this passage reminded me as I studied this week it was that Jesus is in control. He's in control. Verses one to three again say this. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. Jesus had this all figured out and he knew um, that for him to lead a counter procession uh, to Pilate in, in the most countercultural way, but in a language that the people would, would in some way understand, he had to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's why he sent the disciples ahead of him as they were approaching the city. He knew that this is what he had to do. He was in complete control of the situation. He wasn't threatened by Pilate, and he remains in complete control 
of our situations today. And understanding that God is in control challenges us to let go. To let go of our desire for control, to sacrifice our agendas and our ways and our desires for his. And often sacrifice is never an empty act. To sacrifice something is to make room for something else, isn't it? Whether we sacrifice our way for a spouse, our need for a family member's need, or more topically, our desires to go outside for the sake of our country's well-being. To sacrifice something is to make room for something else. And the season of Lent that we are just coming to an end of highlights exactly that. We sacrifice something for the sake of greater closeness to God. Maybe it's fast food, alcohol, Netflix, social media, whether it's screen time. Sacrifice and surrender are some of the hallmarks of the Christian faith. Jesus himself told us that when he said that we were to deny ourselves and take up our cross. Matthew left his tax collecting booth to follow Jesus. Simon Peter and his brother Andrew sacrificed their livelihood as fishermen to follow him. Likewise, James and John did the same thing as they left their father in order to follow Jesus. Matthew 26, or Matthew 16, verse 20, uh, 25 and 26 says this. This is Jesus, Jesus speaking. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone gain in exchange for their soul? Eugene Peterson translates those verses like this. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to finding yourself, your true self. What kind of deal is it to get everything you want but lose yourself? What could you ever trade your soul for? Sacrifice is an integral part of the way of Jesus. And he embodied that himself as he went as a living sacrifice to the cross, as the ultimate sacrifice for us. Rhett Walker says this, when we push to surrender, we are reminded that God has control and we are freed up to live the life that he wants us to live, live lives of freedom, of trust and of love. It's only when we sacrifice ourselves, our desire for control, can we make room for the life that Jesus has for us to live in his freedom and in his trust and in his love. And now, maybe more than ever, everything within us is seeking to take control again. If we can just grab control um, of this, this situation that we find ourselves, maybe things will be begin to return back to normal. Maybe we will begin to settle back into our comfort again. But Jesus shows us an alternative way, his way, that he is still in control. And this passage subtly reminds us of that as, as the way, in the way that Jesus acted in the lead up to his procession into Jerusalem. We must relinquish our way, our desire for control for his. It was discovered in Jim Elliott's journal, a missionary to the Harani tribe in Ecuador, the, the, the same tribe that actually killed him. It was found in his diary that he had 
written these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In Christ, there is sacrifice. But in the sacrifice, we gain even greater communion with him. As we, as we move into this Easter season, in this incredibly uncertain climate, what is it that God is asking you to sacrifice? What is it that he's asking you to sacrifice in order to experience more of him? Is it control? Is it security? Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's your desire to make Jesus the saviour that you want him to be. Maybe it's something that only you know about. Maybe it's a sense of inadequacy. that You can never be good enough for this life, for this Christian life. But whatever it is, know that when you sacrifice these things, that God in his grace and in his kindness and in his mercy walks with us as we walk in his way, in the way that leads to life and life to the full.